Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Conversational. My name is Julie Rehm, and today I have the pleasure of hosting Michael Reinert. So Michael is an attorney at law. He's actually a partner at Fox Rothschild. So before you think to yourself, oh my God, she's interviewing an attorney, that could be crazy. <laughs> you are going to be so impressed by his background and the kind of attorney he is. It is the most amazing story. So a little introduction for Michael before we start talking. He began his career in the music business in New Orleans as a radio personality. So already that's exciting. And he's in the, as they say, he's got more. I've seen him and he's got more than just a a face for radio, I can tell you that. So, um, but he was a radio personality and a programmer and manager of local bands down in New Orleans. And since then, he has represented platinum selling artists while serving as legal counsel to some of the world's largest and most legendary record companies. And before he did this, he served 13 years as the executive vice president of business and legal affairs uh, at the university at the Universal Motown Republic Group, which is a division of UMG Recordings. Before that, Michael was the VP of Business and Legal Affairs for Polygram Records, and he handled duties for the legendary Verb Records label, Mercury National Records, as well as for London Records. He started in the legal business at the firm of Meyer, Katz, Baker, Leibowitz, and Roberts, where he focused solely on work for Atlantic and Electra Records. So I have no doubt that he has been in some super cool company. Before the record industry, he was the VP of licensing and programming for the Rowe International Corporation, which was the world's largest jukebox manufacturer of all times. I'm going to actually, um, or at that time, I'm going to actually have to ask him about whether or not you have a jukebox in your home, because what a cool thing to have. So he was responsible for the development of the first video jukeboxes in the United States, uh, not only as the head of all programming, but he actually helped develop and draft some of the earliest licenses for the commercial exploration of music videos. He served as an adjunct professor of law at his alma mater, the Benjamin Cordoza School of Law, for 10 years. He sits on the board of directors for multiple Myeloma Research Foundation and was honored with their Courage and Commitment Award at their 2010 gala event. He's on other boards as well, but the, this is kind of the new kind of twist to the story. In addition, he has written and performed two one-man off-Broadway shows talking about his experience as a cancer patient. So Tell Me What Can I Do was produced by the Naked Angels Theater Company and was performed at the Playwrights Horizon Theater on Theater Row. So Tell Me How Are You, Because You Look Great, was produced by Jay and Cindy Gutterman and was performed at Theater 80 Street Marks Theater in Greenwich Village. Both shows were directed by Joel Daniel. All proceeds went to benefit the MMRF. So in addition to having an epic history of representing legally you know, some of the really cool radio and um, music recording artists of our time, being the first on the jukebox scene, which is so cool. He's also uh, braved cancer, which he still fights to this day and went on and just created his own theater. I don't know, but like I would just do a mic drop, Michael, because that is one heck of a bio. Welcome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Julie. Welcome, welcome. This is super exciting. But so I just am so curious. What did your parents, where were you born? What did your parents do? Because I'm just wondering if there's any music in that, that kind of spurred you on. Well, I was, I was born in New York City, um, Mount Sinai Hospital up on uh, Fifth Avenue, but I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, right across the George Washington Bridge. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is, though, my parents always pretty much told people wherever we went that they were from New York. They were originally from Brooklyn, 
and moved to Jersey back in the mid-50s. But my father worked on Wall Street. He was a stockbroker. And my mother, uh, this was long before there were shopping malls. My mother would go shopping all the time in the city. Uh, this was pretty much their existence. It was a quick four-mile hop over the GW Bridge. And in fact, uh, eventually, I started going to high school, junior high school and high school in the city at Horace Mann. So by the time I was 12 years old, I was commuting to the city every day. Uh, so, you know, we were suburban people living in Teaneck, but very, very tied to New York. Wow. Um, so your dad was a stockbroker and your mom was a professional shopper. Basically, my mom was a housewife. Uh, uh, you know, the truth is we used to lovingly refer to her as St. Marilyn because she was just the most wonderful woman in the world and everybody just gravitated to her. And she just took care of everybody. So she was that kind of a, a very caring, loving person. Um, and the two of them really raised us in a home to believe about giving back. Um, you know, my parents were always very involved in a lot of causes, especially Jewish philanthropies. And I, I think that one thing I'm so proud of is they were the first couple in the United States to receive something called the Levi Eshkol Award. Uh, if you don't know, he was um, prime minister of Israel and there was an award given every year uh, to a leading member of the Jewish community for philanthropy and furthering the causes of Israel. And my parents were the first married couple to ever receive that award back in, I believe, 1966. Oh my God. Uh, they, they, they were very humble people and they were very um, dedicated to their family. And, you know, that's how we were raised. So that's, you know, Amazing. the feelings that I got. Amazing. Did you, did you have brothers and sisters? I have one sister, an older sister. Still lives in Teaneck. <laughs> still there. And, and, her and her daughter still lives in Teaneck and her grandchildren are in Teaneck. And so uh, there's still and you're a lot in of Midtown, So nobody strayed very far. They, the they stayed. I, I left in 1975 and never looked back. Uh, well, but now you're back. Now you're back. Well, in I, 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 when I say I never, I mean, I left to go to college in 75. I moved to New Orleans and went to Tulane. And when I came back from Tulane, I moved immediately into the city to go to law school. So, so I never really moved back to Jersey. Did, was, so was law always, and I, I guess I'm curious as to where sort of law and music entered your life and kind of informed what you ended up doing with your life. Well, it's, it's a funny story because yes, music has always been my, my great passion, but my other great passion is theater. Um, mm -hmm. As you know, it's evidenced by the, uh, the uh, shows that I did later in, in my life, but, I was uh, a senior in high school and I was applying to colleges and my dad said to me, where are you applying? And I said, well, I'm thinking Carnegie Mellon, uh, Northwestern, NYU, uh, you know, long shot, maybe Yale. He goes, that's great. What do you want to study? I said, well, you know, I really want to study theater arts and direction. That's what I want to do. Maybe writing. He said, oh, that's fantastic. So tell me, who's going to be paying for your education? <laughs> far be it to be far be it for me to tell to tell you what to do with your life. You can be any kind of lawyer you want. So I mean, you know, it was kind of a situation where uh, it, it was a little bit preordained. But then when I finished college, I had spent most of my years in New Orleans, very involved in the music business. You know, one thing you'll learn about virtually every music lawyer is we're all frustrated musicians. We just weren't good enough. 
So I learned that pretty early on, and that's why I got very involved in radio and managing bands. And I was very excited to, uh, you know, continue that career. And I was about to graduate college, and all I wanted to do was stay in the business. And I had a cousin. Um, it's actually my mom's first cousin who lived in Fall River, Massachusetts. And the guy had basically come up with an idea back in the 1960s to pipe music into the factories of Fall River. And this led to a little record store and that led to a record distribution system, which grew into something called the United States Record Corporation. And he was the largest rack jobber of records in the country. The man wouldn't know a hit record if it bit him on the ass, but he had every record company coming to him because he sold more records than anybody. Plus, he, you know, he dabbled a little bit in management. So I wanted to stay in the business. My parents wanted me to go to law school. My mother goes, go see cousin Danny. So I schlep up to Fall River, Massachusetts. I go, Danny, you know, I've spent the last four years in New Orleans. I've really, you know, gotten to know the business. I got the opportunity to work for a label as a local radio rep. He turns to me, he goes, Michael, do you know who Walter Yetnikoff is? I said, sure. He goes, do you know who Clive Davis is? I said, of course. He goes, do you know who Dick Asher is? I said, what's your point? He goes, they're all lawyers. Don't be a schmuck. Go to law school and you can always make a living. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that they were all lawyers. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Clive Davis was a lawyer. I mean, it makes oh perfect sense, but. So by the, by the way, so are all of his children. Well, cause they're not stupid, right? Look at what dad did. I mean, okay, I get it. So, so that's how, so that's how I became an entertainment lawyer. So are interesting. And so how did you get your first, your first, I mean, so I think now we, so let me maybe back up cause the jukebox story did you do that while you were going to law school or right when you no, came no. out? So when I came out of law school, I was very determined to get a job in the entertainment or specifically the music business. Um, and I was, you know, I said, I'd rather drive a cab than, uh, you know, go practice regular law. So I went to work for a little downtown firm. Uh, I won't even tell you the name because they don't exist anymore. But there was one partner there who was doing music work. And I, I got a referral. I went there for an interview. It was supposed to be a 10-minute informational interview. It wound up three hours. He hired me. I was literally making less money than the, uh, the you know, assistants on staff. I mean, I was, I was working for nothing. But for me, it was the opportunity to be working with artists at the time, like um, David Bromberg, um, Bobby McFerrin, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the others that we dealt with. Um, uh, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. The first project I ever worked on was the movie soundtrack for um, Eddie and the Cruisers. Um, so it was really a wonderful experience. And then the jukebox thing came along because somebody said to me, there was this jukebox company in New Jersey called Rowe International. And they were, at the time, the largest jukebox manufacturer in the world. But they had come up with a technology for a video jukebox. Problem is, in the jukebox world, when you're an operator of jukeboxes, you just go to your local one-stop, pick out the records you want, and put them in your, your machine. Obviously, you could not do that with videos. So for the first time as manufacturers, they had to supply their customers with the software and content to show the videos. They needed somebody to make them. They needed somebody to license them. They needed somebody to program them. So I had both a legal background and a programming background from radio. It seemed like an interesting fit. Um, and they let me call the shots. They were in New Jersey, but I insisted on having my own office in New York. 
I spent about 10 days every month in the studio editing video reels. And I spent the rest of my time basically meeting with every record company and publishing company I could trying to get the necessary licenses. Wow. So did you, so all these, I mean, all these, it's it's an amazing story, but I was going to go back a little bit where you were saying that you were working on the, you know, like the soundtracks for the Eddie and the cruisers. I mean, you know, my language, I love that. Were you ever, I just, I'm just curious as do you ever, you know, it's not necessarily your holy shit moment unless there was something impacting you, but are there any good stories from uh, any of your interactions with any of those, um, those soundtracks and movies? I just, it was such a different era of music then than it is now. Um, you know, I, I can't really say back then. I, you know, I was, I was the little pitcher in the pond, you know, I was the lowest guy on the totem pole. I wasn't the guy who got to sit in the big meetings. Every once in a while, my boss would take me on his A&R runs, which was fun because I would get to meet people. And it's funny because I still speak to some of the people I met all the way back then in business and friends capacity. And from the road jute box days, I still do business with a lot of people I met back then. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, as a guy who was a huge music fan, there were a couple of times as a video programmer, I didn't realize the power I had. And so the video promotion people at the record labels would say, hey, you know, you know, come to this party or come to that thing or, you know, we're going to do a video shoot with so-and-so. And I started to realize, well, I could get to meet some of my heroes. And the first person I got to meet like that was Richie Fure. I don't know if the name means anything to you, but Richie Fury is the original, one of the original founding members of Buffalo Springfield. Oh, he was a founding member of Poco um, and then went on to a very illustrious solo career and another band called Southern Hillman and Fury. And he was one of my heroes growing up musically. And I got, to, I got to meet him through this gig and to this day, he's one of my best friends. I mean, we're, we had, you know, he lives in Colorado. We don't see each other as much anymore. But, you know, when his kids went to NYU, you know, we were, you know, Aunt Karen and Uncle Michael taking care of them. And, you know, it was a wonderful, cool thing. But I remember that first moment I got to meet him. I was like, oh, my God, I'm meeting Richie Fury. This is, you know, to me, it was a big moment. I, well, and those kinds of things are the holy shit moments, right? That's exactly, yeah. that, those are the things that stick with you. And, and did... How did you get then from going the jukebox into actually practicing law? And I guess I'm wondering for all these different labels that you, you help to manage and, and work with, well, did the relationships come back into play? Yeah. Well, what happened with, after about four years of jukebox company, um, truth is the product had its flaws. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Uh, and the supply chain was a real difficulty. Yeah, it would be a real difficult problem. So um, somebody approached me and said, look, there's an opportunity to work for this law firm. Uh, it's a unique law firm because at the time, this is the late 1980s, Atlantic Records um, did not have a business affairs department. It did not have a legal department. This law firm acted in both of those capacities based on the long relationship the senior partner had with Ahmed Erdogan. So we were literally in the Warner building. We were in the Atlantic floors. We, you know, we were right there, but they were legally a separate entity. And they represented quite a lot of big stars. I mean, I remember also working on In Excess and Billy Idol um, and New Kids on the Block when they were first coming out. So the partners of the firm represented some major talent, but the primary clients were Atlantic and Electra Records. And I immediately gravitated to that work. I had always just... Had, there was something about working at a record label that really was my dream. So mm-hmm. at that firm, I 
I, I took the job knowing that I might be able to do that. I got in and immediately you know, volunteered to do whatever I could to work for both Atlantic and Electra. I happened to know the guy at Electra pretty well. And that's where I met the guy who really changed my life, um, a gentleman named Mel DeWinter. Uh, Mel works side by side with Doug Morris, who also became really, the two of them became so important to me because they taught me everything I knew and know, I should say, about being not only a good lawyer, but by being a good person and being a very respectful business person. Um, they took me under their wing. They really just protected me and yet showed me how to do things the right way. And it was the most important experience of my life as a business person. And to this day, I, I speak to Mel at least once a week. Um, so it was really the most formative part of my career were those years at Mayor Katz, where I got to work for uh, Atlantic and Electra. Um, so why, why would you have ever left? What was it that pulled you away from oh, them? Well, there's, well, you know, in the music business, there's always dirty laundry and we're not going to air any of that. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's, let's just say that um, an opportunity arose for me to take a more senior position as vice president. Uh, so the, when the position arose at Polygram, I went to Mel. I said, look, I, you know, I have this opportunity to go directly to this label in-house as vice president. And he turned to me and went, you know, go, get your stripes, get some experience. In a few years, you'll come back. I went, no problem. Love that. What's ironic is um, that during the time I was at Polygram, Mel and Doug basically got kicked out of Warner's. Famous story, but you can look it up. They then formed their own little record company. That little record company became Universal Records. Uh, Edgar Brofman bought MCA. He changed MCA to Universal. He called Doug Morris and he said, will you please come run my you run Universal? Which So here was Doug Morris who had built Warner Brothers, Warner's Music, now he was going to basically one of his former biggest competitors, uh, the former MCA records, now known as Universal Records. Uh, and he built it and you know, it became an enormously successful company. And two years later, it merged with Polygram. Oh my goodness. And I remember we were, I was at the TJ Martell charity dinner in 1998 and I saw Mel, it was like that scene in West Side Story where you know they cross across the, the crowded room and they meet in the middle and I gave him a big hug and he went, Welcome back. It's just a different address. And I, he immediately tapped me to become the head of legal and business affairs for what was then known as the Universal Motown uh, Universal Motown Republic Group, but, which is now basically Republic Records. Um, but you know, you, I, I won't go into the whole story of how the two companies merged. But so I, I, I worked for Mel and Doug, and I left to go to Polygram. Was there for four years, but then I came back and worked for Mel and Doug for another thirteen years after that. So his prediction was right, just not quite in the way that he thought or you thought. So that's pretty funny that that comes full circle. But it's always yeah. like these network, these people, right? That that kind of to your point that that stick with you, that you know, inform who you are, but also you guys help propel one another. It is it, it there. It is all about the network, you know, which is part of how I started this, right? Is the network, the stories, and the people that make you who you are. So when when I'm going to move move forward a little bit further, what Tell me what happened and when you first learned and kind of where you were at the stage of life, um, career-wise and family-wise, when you when you learned about your diagnosis. 
Okay. Um, well, that was back in 2008. I was uh, executive vice president of business and legal affairs at what was ostensibly one of the world's largest record companies. My family was just in a beautiful place. We had a just welcomed a beautiful new grandson. Um, life was great. I mean, really could not have been in a better place. And I remember I, I kind of had this pain in my back. This, I felt like I pulled a muscle and I had this little lump that I just thought I was like a knot. And I really tried everything to get rid of it. Uh, you know, massage and muscle relaxers and everything. You know, I thought I was just crutching too much. I thought I was just out of shape and, you know, shut up. I remember my buddy Michael and I were at the New Orleans Jazz Festival and he was giving me a really hard time about how much I was complaining about this pain in my back. Uh, and then, then I got home from New Orleans and I decided I should go see somebody because pain was getting a little worse. Um, I went to see a doctor. It was a Friday. He, it was my cardiologist because I thought there was something wrong with my heart, quite frankly. I thought it was my chest. He thought it might have been a pulmonary embolism. Uh, and I will tell you that in the 12 plus years I've had this disease, those were the worst 45 minutes of my life, trying to find out whether or not I had a ticking time bomb in my chest. Uh, I got a CAT scan, no pulmonary embolism. I was so just incredibly thrilled. I ran home and he says, yeah, but I want you to come back on Monday because you need to get a PET scan. I went, fine, whatever you took me, whatever, whatever you say, fine, you know, just as long as I'm not going to die in 45 minutes. I had no idea what a PET scan was. And then that night I decided to go online and look, and that was the first time I saw the word cancer. Mm -hmm. So the next morning I called him at home and I said to him, Harvey, um, do I need to see an oncologist? And he said to me, well, you know, let's see what the PET scan says. But if my hunch is right, yes. I said, really, <laughs> what are you hunching? He goes, I think it's this disease called multiple myeloma. And that was May 31st, 2008. I had the PET scan Monday, I had the bone marrow biopsy Tuesday, and uh, confirmed the diagnosis by Wednesday. It was, a, it was you know, quite a shock. Um, I went online, which was the stupidest thing to do. But online, basically, I was told I had three to five years to live. And I said, no. So thus, thus began the, uh, the adventure. Thus began the, 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 the next 12 years of my life. What is multiple myeloma? Multiple myeloma is a rare, incurable cancer of the blood. It affects your bones. It affects your immune system. And it can affect your kidneys. There are at least 15 known variations of the disease. So that's why there are a number of different severities and different ways it can affect you. Um, the more severely affected patients have chromosomal damage, which can in turn make your bones even more brittle. Um, as I said, there is no cure, but in the last, I would say 12 to 15 years, there have been more advancements in this particular disease than probably any other single cancer. And that's amazing considering that it is still an orphan cancer, meaning that it does not have enough new diagnoses every year to consider a major category of cancers. Um, there is amazing, incredible research being done in this field. And you do quite a lot to donate and fund the research in, in this area from what you, I mean, I'm sure that the 12, 15 years, first of all, you've blown away the three to five year 
you know, prognosis that you were given, but um, you've also helped to contribute not only just to, to, for your own personal survival, but for that of others as well through, through your, you know, I, I guess I, I, I know that it's, that that's where you're donating for your, um, your Broadway plays, but um, I, it's just, it's an amazing, it's a, it's an amazing story that you have been able to beat this and, and continue to fight it so long and so well. I imagine that there have been many up and downs in that, that period. Well, you, know, you, you mentioned my parents earlier on, and not only my parents, but my grandparents as well. My grandfather was probably the strongest influence in my life. And, and as I said earlier, giving is a very, very important part of the fabric of our lives. When I was, before I was diagnosed, I was on the board of a number of different uh, charitable organizations, including the T.J. Martell Foundation, which is a very well-known uh, leukemia uh, cancer foundation and was very proud of the fact that while I was on the board, uh, they were very involved with the development of the Gleevec drug, which is considered a miracle pill. I mean, literally can cure some forms of leukemia. When I got diagnosed, they were the first people I called because it was sort of an old routine that whenever anybody got sick, people would call me, I would say, okay. And then I would call the people at the Martella Foundation and say, okay, I've got a friend, a, bro, you know, a cousin of somebody, they've got this kind of cancer, who do we go to? And we would put you know, project mode into play. Um, that, they were the first people I called when I got diagnosed. I said, all right, who do I want to see? And you know, the doctor there, may he rest in peace, he was a wonderful man, but he, uh, he gave me the list of names that I wanted to go see, and one of those people was the doctor who's been taking care of me now since the beginning. But, um, the problem was the Martell Foundation didn't do anything in this, in this area. This was not their field. And I knew that there had to be somebody like Tony Martell, who was so dedicated to finding the cure for leukemia, there had to be somebody who had to be there for finding the cure for multiple myeloma. And that person is a woman named Kathy Giusti. Uh, she is just a remarkable, remarkable woman. She was 36 years old. Uh, a white woman living in Westport, Connecticut. Uh, she was had an identical twin sister. She was given this diagnosis and was told, you have three years to live, get your affairs in order. That was 24 years ago. Oh my gosh. She, I live in decided, Westport, Connecticut. Is she still here? Yes. Um, she decided to uh, found this organization, the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, which has not only been so instrumental in developing so many of these drugs that are now available for our, for me as a patient, but it's tr she has truly upended the entire concept of fundraising for cancer research. And I don't want to go into a whole MMRF pitch here, but I will give them one plug and say, if you are interested, the website is themmrf.org. Uh, it is you know, a unique, incredible organization that has now become the model for so many other cancer charitable foundations. So I have been a member of their board now for eight years, nine years. Uh, I was responsible for, I guess, seven years in a row. I, I was the chairman of their gala and we had, uh, we honored people like Barry Gordy, uh, Dutch, Clive Davis, uh, Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson, uh, uh, of course, Tom Brokaw, who was a patient. We had artists like Earth, Wind & Fire, Jennifer Hudson, Michael McDonald, uh, Wynton Marsalis, John Legend, 
so many more who all came, you know, Paul Simon, Diana Crawl, Diana's mother passed away from this disease. They all came up to Connecticut. They all came to Greenwich on a Saturday night and played for us to raise money for this incredible cause. So it was, uh, it's, been, it's been a great passion of mine and a great pleasure of mine to be able to contribute to trying to find a cure for this thing. Well, and your your music history and your the your your relationships, I'm sure, help that on. I mean, it's this is why I always think it's a you know life is a funny thing, and when you kind of sit back and you can observe it, it's, it's why I enjoy this, right? I can observe from afar, you know, seeing all these all these things that happen to you. You know, I, I always believe that everything has a meaning, and we've got these opportunities and these windows if we choose to see them, and. So, you know, while it was your, you know, it was your profession, this has now turned into something that has been life-saving for you, but probably for others. And I want to, I want to, like, I want to be able to cover these Broadway, these one-man Broadway shows. Off-Broadway, off-Broadway. Okay, off-Broadway, whatever. It's all all the same (laughs) If you're in New York and you're on or off-Broadway, you have made it in my book, Michael. So, (laughs) you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, okay, off-Broadway, one-man shows, but how, how did you, I just, tell me the story of how that happened, how you did it, why you did it, what they're about. Well, like I said before, theater's always been my passion. Um, my wife and I, we always say that the reason we live in New York is so that we can go to theater. About, uh, let's see, about five years before I got diagnosed, I got introduced to um, a local theater company called Naked Angels, which has a very interesting program every Tuesday night they would meet in a theater and do cold readings of a scene, uh, 10 pages. And you can bring in 10 pages of your show and they would literally cast it on the spot. There would be maybe a hundred actors milling around the theater and they would cast it, hand them the script, and at nine o'clock everybody sits down in the theater and maybe five or six different scenes would be read. I just loved this. And then if your show you could, you could bring down scene by scene by scene. And then if your show got developed, they would do a complete reading of the show once a month called First Mondays. And then eventually, if the show was good enough, it might even get produced. So I started going down and it was kind of ironic because here I am this, and I mean this just from an objective perspective. Here I am, this big fancy music executive, you know, you know, making big money and, you know, have this big fancy title. And I walk into this theater and I'm all surrounded by all these actors and, and actresses and writers. And I am in awe of every single one of these people. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? And basically these people are struggling as bartenders and waitresses and taxi drivers and dog walkers. And I'm thinking, I'm just blessed to be in their presence. I can't believe they're letting me in. So I started writing things and I started bringing it down and I kind of became accepted within the community and I was working on a play, actually a play about my family, and it got accepted um, for a first Mondays. Uh, They read like seven or eight of the scenes. So they always take the summer off. I got diagnosed, as I said, May 31st. They had told me that I was going to have my reading of my play in September. And I called them up and I said, I'm very sorry, you, you, you I have to withdraw from the reading because uh, I have a personal problem. I didn't tell them what it was. So I'm going to share with you the story that is rather personal, but here's how it goes. My best friend died of cancer 13 years before I got diagnosed. He was my, uh, 
he was my best friend from college and uh he died from a, a brain tumor that was just there was no chance he was he, they told him he had six months to live and he died six months to the day but he went out with a bang he went out with a bang he, he we partied our brains out every day until the day he died uh when i got diagnosed i had to tell people and i had to inform my friends and one of my dearest friends is stevie wonder and i had to call stevie and tell him we had a very 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 personal conversation that night and i went home the next day i, I was sitting in the backyard and i was listening to a song of his called positivity it's on his last album I probably heard that song a hundred times, but for some reason that day I really listened to the words and I turned to my wife. I said, that's it. This is how we're going to lead our lives. If this is the hand that's been dealt us, no grim faces, no depression, positivity. We are going to look at the horizon, not our feet from now on. And I thought about my friend, Alan. So, I sat down and I wrote something. I just wrote, wasn't even supposed to be a scene. I just wrote something about being positive, thinking about positivity and thinking about my buddy, Alan. And I wrote a very funny story about spending Thanksgiving with Alan. So I sent it to the creative director of, Na of Naked Angels. I said, maybe you want to have somebody read this. The first night of this new season, I walked in and he turned to me and he went, get up there and read it. I said, I don't do that. I'm a writer. He goes, get up and read it. So it was the first scene of the first night of the new season. And I get up and all, you know, I probably know half the room. And the first line of the scene is a lot of things went through my mind when I found out I had cancer. And the whole room just went, oh. At the scene, it's very funny. It's very touching. I got off the stage. He pulled me aside. He said, I've always loved your work, but you found your niche. So if you keep writing this and you finish it, I'll direct it. So I was in the middle of my first rounds of chemotherapy. I mean, I, had, I think I'd had two rounds so far and I had eight more to go. And throughout the entire time I was um, getting chemo, I kept writing scenes. And when I was strong enough, I would take them down on Tuesday nights and read them. And then finally in early December, they called me and they said, okay, February 2nd, first Mondays, you're reading the play. Little did they know, three days later, I was going on sabbatical to move to Boston to get my stem cell transplant. <laughs> so Monday night, I think it was February 2nd or February 3rd, at Playwrights Horizon, it was supposed to be done script in hand, but you know, I, by that time I had memorized the thing. And 130 people packed into that theater, and we read it. I left three days later to go for my transplant. But I will tell you, it was the most cathartic, most important thing that could have possibly happened as I was about to go on to this, this unknown thing, this stem cell transplant. I came back three months later, I'm sitting with my director again. He goes, so what'd you write? So what do you mean, what did I write? I've been in an isolation room for four weeks and I've been in, I really don't, he goes, pardon me, bullshit. There's gotta be some great stories. I wrote about another three or four new scenes. And six months later, we opened off Broadway at the Playwrights Horizon Theater. Wow. And how long did it come? We only did four nights, four nights of each show. Um, Naked Angels was producing another show called This Wide Night with Edie Falco and, oh gosh, I can't remember the other actress's name. So we piggybacked onto them and we used the theater uh, during that run. 
so we, we did four nights there. And then about three months later, I did the show again at the um, uh, Museum for Television and Broadcasting, uh, the, Walt, the Paley Museum. And we did it there when we filmed it there. And so what was this was the second one that you talked about? The, so tell me, how are you? Because you look great. Well, the reason the first play came about in a way was the title show is I, I had sent out um, an email to all my friends and family because everybody wanted to know what was going on. So I, I did a sort of joking Q&A with everybody, like, what do you have? And I would answer the question. The last question in this thing was, so tell me, what can I do? Because that was the first question everybody would ask me when I told them that I had cancer. And I even wrote in that email, parenthetically, I swear someday I'm going to write a play and that's going to be the title. And two years later, I opened off, literally to the day, two years later, I opened off Broadway and that was the title of the play. So um, what happened was the play was, you know, I did the play, it was a lot of fun. You know, I, I kept going on with my life um, and I sort of settled into a normal routine. You know, the funny thing is, I don't take normal chemotherapy. I didn't lose my hair. I didn't lose the weight. I didn't turn into a gray ghost. The fact is, and I say this unabashedly because it's what everybody tells me, I look fantastic. I don't look like I'm sick. I look healthy as, as you know, like anything. You know, I'm just, it, it's the curse of my existence because everybody comes up to me and goes, hey, you look great. <laughs> what they're not saying is, hey, you look great for somebody who's got incurable cancer. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a joke with us and the family now. It's like I meet people for the first time and maybe an hour after I meet them, they'll find out I have cancer and they get all flustered and they get all they don't know what to say. and They know what to do. So what do they go? Well, you look great <laughs> as if that's the consolation prize. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so I turned to my, I said, look, I just got to do this one more time. I got to do it again. And that's got to be the title. And the second experience, though, was just really amazing because the first one, you might want to call it sort of a high school production. It was really, I designed the set. I designed everything, you know. The second one, uh, Jay and Cindy Gutterman, the producers, are major Broadway producers. And I remember the first day we were going to have our first table meeting with the entire crew and my director picked the lighting person he picked separate he picked everybody so i walked into the meeting it was in my conference room there must have been 10 or 11 of us sitting around the table and i said thank you everybody for coming and you know i have some great ideas to share with you and let me show you what i have some ideas for the set and let me tell you what i have some ideas for the music and they all had this very uncomfortable look on their face and joe denisi the director turns to me and he just pats me on the hand and he goes michael you're just the fucking talent. So you sit there and we'll let you know when we need you. And that was basically the last thing I had to say about my show. <laughs> and they, they then went ahead and designed the absolute most beautiful production I could, I could never envision anything like this. And it was, you know, spectacular. It was a true, true off-Broadway quality, uh, you know, to Broadway quality, I should say even title production and I'm so eternally grateful to these people who gave me all this time and effort you know to do this and we ran a week at uh, the St. Mark's Theatre and it was great. And when was that? That was 19, uh, 2016. 
Wow. Okay. So that's amazing. And what, so now I have to ask where one, how are you doing now? Because you're at 12 years and thriving, I hope. And 12, 12 years, next? one month, 16 days. Oh, good for you. And what's, so what's next? Uh, health wise. Um, well, that or maybe I, plays. What, what is it as any, anything? Well, here's the thing. Um, you know, I doubt they'll, uh, I joke at the end of the second play, I, I refer to them as STM one and STM two. And I joke that maybe someday I'll write STM three and I'll call it. So tell me you still here. <laughs> but, um, you know, they are, uh, they were labors of love. They were the right thing at the right time. I don't really see myself doing it again. Uh, I think what I'm really working on right now is taking both plays and trying to consolidate them into a book. Good and what you. a lot of people have asked me to do is, you know, tell the stories, but also share the advice. I mean, one thing, again, it's one thing to raise money, but the other thing I've spent a lot of my time and efforts doing is working with newly diagnosed patients and patients and, and staying with them. And we have this amazing network of patients that we work with. Um, and the idea is that, you know, everybody can show compassion, but nobody can really understand what you're going through except somebody else is going through it. So I have, you know, probably maybe had 20 to 25 different people who've come into my life as patients and tried to share with them my experiences. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I try to explain to them that, you know, you don't have to be a doctor to be in control of your life. Unfortunately, I've lost too many of those people, including my closest friend in, in the community. I, I met somebody right after uh, I got diagnosed. Within a year, I met another guy who, he could have been a twin sons of a different mother. I mean, we, we literally went to high school together and didn't even know each other at the time. But um, we became incredibly, incredibly close. Uh, him and his family, my family, and he passed away in January. Uh, so we lose our friends and patients in this community all too often, but nevertheless, just being able to be there for people. And, you know, I always tell the patients, don't forget whoever's taking care of you needs to be taken care of as well. So we always make sure that the caregivers are always being given care too. Uh, I always say this has been much harder on my wife than it's been on me. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's an amazing, um, story and how you you're able to um give back i mean look, while you're personally fighting this disease and all the things that you've done i mean it's such a remarkable life story just in total without even the the cancer element but but taking that in and coupling that in with all the things that you've done and and fighting this disease while helping others and coming full circle in such a beautiful way i think to you know the, how we started with your point about your your parents and their passion and their, you know, kind of their life quest to constantly give back. You, you've done that obviously out of the spirit of your parent, but, ju but just because of it is who you are and giving back when you yourself are going through so much is really, I, you know, I, I don't have the words for it. It's just, it's, uh, it's really inspiring. And um, gosh, I hope, I hope that we get some listeners in here who hear, hear this and who help to, to donate and help you um, on this quest to, to create a cure for this crazy, you know, lesser known disease that's out there. So just amazing story. Thank you for sharing this with us. Thank you. You know, I always do tell people I have a cure. I'm going to grow old and die of something else. 
<laughs> yes, you know what? And good for you. And looking at you, you do look great. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll tell you a funny story. I, got, I have a brother-in-law, my sister's brother, uh, my wife's brother, um, who is a very, very uh, restrained guy. Not big sense of humor. He's just very, very quiet guy. And so we, he came in one not too long ago, a few years ago. We were having dinner, going to have dinner with him. And Karen said, Richard, listen, one thing, don't tell Michael how good he looks because he really doesn't like hearing it. You don't have to tell him. It's okay, all right? She's like, fine. So we're sitting down. We, we, we meet at the restaurant. We sit down. We're about to have dinner. He goes, oh, Michael. He goes, you look like shit. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I went, Richard, I love you, man. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's a great, it's an amazing story. Okay, well, can we give one more plug to that? Is it the MMRF? Yes, it's uh, themmrf.org. Um, you know, I, I'm very grateful to you for, for giving us that plug. Um, please yeah. visit uh, if you're a patient, of course, but um, if you're just interested in learning more about you know, what we do and how we do it. And, you know, it's not just about multiple myeloma. It's about all cancers. And we want to be there for every type of patient, every type of cancer, and try and help them figure out the best way to have a quality of life and hopefully, knock wood, find a cure for this thing. So, Right. Uh, well, you know, my, um, my heartfelt thanks to you for sharing this story, this very personal story. And, and I... My best wishes to you and your continued quest for, you know, beating this thing and, uh, you know, dying old of something totally different. Yeah. Um, you know, good for you. And if you get that book, I hope you'll let me know because I'd, I'd love to be able to be able to plug that again for people to be able to, to pick up and read because it sounds well, fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate that. And I really do appreciate the time today. I, I've enjoyed it so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Michael. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.